Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. Well, when we think about someone pursuing a call to ministry, my mind kind of went in a strange place when I read Isaiah 6. I imagined what it'd be like if you showed up for the first day of seminary and all of a sudden your orientation is what we read from Isaiah 6, that basically you're going to go out, you're going to preach, People's hearts are going to be hardened. They're not going to listen. They're not going to hear. I just realize how much this is contrary to the American dream or what we say in terms of American churches. This is not what we expect in terms of the gospel ministry. But nevertheless, Isaiah is commissioned to go. And he goes willingly after his lips are cleansed. And so... What does Isaiah fundamentally learn about the preaching of the gospel as we talk about the keys of the kingdom in the Heidelberg Catechism? Because again, this is a rather strange pep talk prior to ministry that basically you're going to go out, you're going to fail, people aren't going to receive the word, but you're being sent anyway, and that's just the reality of it. And so what do we fundamentally learn? And do we just then expect some sort of a pessimistic outlook in terms of the gospel and just say, well people aren't going to like the message anyway, and so too bad. Or is the Lord also giving Isaiah the hope exactly what the catechism is teaching us, that it opens and closes the kingdom of God? And so I wanted to sort of flip the catechism a little bit, and when it talks about opening and closing the kingdom of God, I want to first deal with the closing of the kingdom of God, uh, looking at this from Isaiah, uh, basically the large portion of his commission in verses 8 through uh, 13, but then also see that there is a consolation in the gospel when you look at verse 13. And so let's begin by the gospel condemnation uh, and Isaiah's mission. So when we look at Isaiah's mission, we look at what the catechism is teaching us, and it says the keys of the kingdom. Uh, so this is teaching us that this is how the kingdom is opened and closed. And so I think so often we can think of a disconnect between this age and the age to come. Uh, that we think what happens here doesn't really matter, and what happens in heaven is ultimately what matters. But the reality is we're, we're not just spectators in the sense that we kind of just wait to see what God's going to do. Uh, but we have to see what we do together in terms of worship as Christians. Uh, this is part of, of the blessings of being in Christ, uh, that we're part of the heavenly assembly uh, we're singing praises to God. And so the catechism is teaching us that the gospel is very clear. Now normally when we think of the gospel, we think of the gospel being the general call of the gospel. Well, this is true. This is good. Uh, I affirm the general call of the gospel. I do affirm that when the gospel is preached, there is a sincere call for all to repent. Uh, but only those who are chosen will repent and, and receive the gift of the Spirit uh, as the Lord is pleased to confer that gift. We can see discipline as certainly being that 
a means whereby the kingdom of Christ is closed. But the Catechism tells us in question and answer 84 that the kingdom is closed through preaching. And so you think about that, and question or answer 84 walks us through what's going on here when it's proclaimed to hypocrites and unbelievers. Uh, hypocrites comes from the Greek play actors. Uh, these are people that act apart but don't really believe the substance of the gospel. So they're basically those who claim to be insiders, but they're really those who are unbelievers. This is what we see Christ interacting uh, with Pharisees and much of the leadership of Israel, right? He calls them hypocrites. They, they play the part, but they don't really believe the substance of the gospel, which is ultimately manifested in their sending Christ to the cross. Obviously, uh, that's a pretty big problem. But as this message goes forth, this is not always a message of consolation. Because the Catechism is telling us that as the gospel goes forth, basically it's this double sword, much like uh, we heard this morning from Hebrews. Either you bow your knee before Christ in this life, and, and you embrace him in faith, and, and that's, that's what we're called to do, that's what we should do. Or when Christ comes again, you're going to bow your knee uh, before him if you didn't in this life, and that's not going to be a very pleasant bowing before the great king. And that's what the gospel is proclaiming. This Christ is coming again. Either you submit to his yoke in this life or you're going to meet him in the age to come when he returns and that's not going to be a positive experience. And so the gospel is proclaiming this truth. Christ is coming. Uh, the call is to take on the yoke of Christ and truly follow Christ. Now in terms of discipline, obviously we can look at this and say, well, this makes sense. Uh, as there's a series of admonitions and eventually the kingdom is closed, there's that reminder, this person is put out of the church. They're no longer part of the community. That's, that's not a good thing. And so the correlation between this age and the age to come is that reminder that when someone's put out of the church, it's, it's supposed to awaken them ideally, and, and it is a reminder even for us to continually pray for such people uh, that they would repent that as long as they have breath in their lungs, we can still pray that such a person would bow their knee before Christ in a good sense of taking on the yoke of Christ rather than the bad sense when Christ comes again and all bow their knees to Christ, uh, whether they embrace him in faith or not. And so in, in terms of the keys of the kingdom, I, I thought that church discipline, we, we understand how that closes the kingdom. Uh, but looking at Isaiah's commission, I thought it was helpful to show that in terms of the preaching of the gospel, there, there is certainly a warning, even in terms of the gospel call. And so this is where I thought it's interesting to look at Isaiah and see how Isaiah interacts with the Lord. And so if you put this into context and you see the, the prophet Isaiah in the midst of the heavenly council of angels... It's rather significant, and something, for some reason, hit me more this time than any other time, that Isaiah witnesses the angels singing praises. So Isaiah is, is a spectator in the heavenly worship. So this is telling us something about Isaiah in the context of the angelic beings singing praises to God. He's redeemed. There's, there's no doubt that in this context, Isaiah is a man uh, who's called of Christ, I mean, called of God. 
and yet he's a spectator in terms of their worship. We might say, well, why does that matter? Well, notice how the angels respond to God in verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And so what this is doing in the Hebrew language is emphasizing that God is truly holy. R.C. Sproul always does a thing in the holiness of God. And my, one of my friends can impersonate him perfectly. In fact, he would go around and people would request when he did pulpit supply to do his impression of R.C. Sproul. But R.C. Sproul would always say, God's not just holy, he's holy, and he's not just holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. And what that does is it emphasizes the force of what the Hebrew's getting at. That, that God's just not a holy God who's removed. He is so holy that, that we cannot come into his presence. And this is where you understand Isaiah's reaction. Here I am, standing in the midst of the heavenly angels, before God, and woe is me. You know, verse 5. He, he doesn't know what to do. I've seen the Lord of hosts. I'm going to die and, and I just have to embrace my fate. That's the reality of where I am right now. Now notice that when Isaiah uh, speaks, we find why Isaiah is a spectator in this worship. I am a man of unclean lips. This means uh, unsanctified lips. Lips that are put outside the camp. Lips that would not be uh, considered worthy of speaking good things to God. And so it's not just his lips that are the problem, but it's basically what's come out of his mouth is coming out of the essence of who Isaiah is. So when he's making this profession, he's saying, I, I, I'm an evil man. I, I can't say good, positive, edifying, true words of God because of who I am. Now this is where you can understand the original audience being very upset about this. It's not just... I, Isaiah, have a problem. You'd be like, yeah, you do have a problem, Isaiah. You're, you're a, a problematic person. But he says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Where now he's indicting his countrymen. And he's saying that his own countrymen are evil people as well. All of them are, are evil. None of them are worthy of the living God. So this is why Isaiah is a spectator watching the worship in heaven. He's too un un impure, too unholy, too unclean to participate in the angelic chorus. He understands us. Now notice that this transfer of power and what takes place. That we have this angel or the seraphim that flies and picks up a coal in the altar. And as the angel picks up the coal in the altar, touches Isaiah's lips. Now, there's a couple things that are significant here. Very briefly, you have the flaming coals in the altar, which implies that the sacrifice has not been done. So this is basically the, the altar that's prepared for Christ, as we heard from Hebrews 9. You know, the picture of Christ being brought up into the heavenly sanctuary and being slaughtered there in his blood, uh, purifying that heavenly sanctuary. So the point here is that this altar isn't just an altar. It's not just to create heat, <clears throat> excuse me, heat because the angels are cold. Uh, this is projecting that there is a sacrifice that will need to be done. And so Isaiah receives his cleansing from the burning coal of this altar based upon the promise of the coming Messiah. And so all of a sudden when, when this coal touches the lips of Isaiah... 
It's as if the work of Christ truly touches him and cleanses him to his core. And now we find his guilt is taken away. So this is expiation, taking the guilt away, atonement, covering his sin, covering his offense. In other words, now Isaiah, the man who can only profess his wickedness, sinfulness, inability to participate in heavenly worship and join with the angels in, in their chorus, is now a man where you have all of a sudden a voice implying that it's the angel of the Lord or it's God himself saying, who shall I send? Well, the man who just moments ago said, I, I can't sing praises, I, I can't speak, I'm going to die, I've seen the great king, the Lord of hosts, I don't know what my fate is and I'm terrified. All of a sudden, this same man stands up and says, here I am, send me. I mean, you can see this radical transfer of what's taken place in terms of what God has done. So you're seeing, in a sense, this picture of the gospel working. And Isaiah, a man who, who is humbled before God, terrified of his fate, is now a man who says, let me do the will of my Lord. So we would think, okay, so Isaiah's going to go. He's already professed he's a man of unclean lips. His countrymen are men of unclean lips. He's basically indicted the whole community. He's going to go share what he has seen, and there's just going to be this, this radical revival in the midst of Israel. But we find the, the commission for Isaiah to be almost depressing. Because as he goes out, the, the Lord doesn't say, well, you're going to go out, there's going to be thousands and thousands and ten thousands and hundreds of thousands of converts. In fact, he says the opposite. You're going to go out. You're going to bring the word. You're going to give this call for people to hear, but they're not going to hear. They're not going to understand. It's, it's the irony. They're, they're going to hear words, but they won't understand the substance of these words. Uh, we find that as they go out, they're going to see, so their eyes are working. It's not that they're literally blind, but they're not really going to know or perceive, understand is what the Hebrew text is getting at, that they're really not going to understand. We find that their ears will be unresponsive, literally heavy, dull, uh, that it's just not going to do anything uh, for them, and their eyes ultimately will not see. But we find that, that it gets even more discouraging. That the Lord has, has a purpose in teaching us something through the people of Israel. That he's going to send them into exile. And as the gospel goes out, as Isaiah does his mission, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. In other words, the, the Lord knows this message, as it goes forth, as Isaiah brings the word of the Lord, is going to just continually close the door. They're going to have fat hearts, literally, just hearts that are not tender to the gospel. Hearts that are tuned in to this age, don't care about God at all. We find that as he goes forward, he says, well, well how long? In other words, Isaiah's trying to get his marching orders. Well, well how long will I do this? And the Lord doesn't give him a specific timetable, but he's basically laying out the consequence of the exile. Their cities lie in waste, which means basically they're going to be leveled. 
Uh, there's not going to be anything that's, that's left of them. Uh, we have this reminder that uh, their houses are going to be without people. And so it's, it's this land that, that basically becomes a ghost town. The land of milk and honey, the land of prosperity, is the land of death. You're going to walk through it and it's going to kind of feel like a, a, a Chernobyl-type experience of just, you know, at one time there was life here, but, but you, you just kind of get this eerie feeling that it's no longer there. And we find that as this goes and this happens, that the Lord is going to drive them into this place of just nothingness, despair, wilderness away from this land. And so when we think about this mission of Isaiah, we say, well, is this really what happens? Well, as Isaiah goes on in his mission and interacts with Israel, there's basically this, this commission, as a commentator, I love how he puts it, he says basically the people of Israel said, why don't you just go teach kindergarten? And that's basically what Isaiah is calling to their attention in Isaiah 28, 9 and 10. That basically is, they, they just want them to teach the ones who have just been weaned, the, the ones that they don't care about. In other words, just go away. Take this little class of these younglings and, and let us be. We, we, we don't want to hear this message. We, we don't like what you have to say. And so Isaiah is basically saying that this prophecy is confirmed. This word goes out to a fat-hearted, hard-hearted individuals. Uh, they do not receive his message. And so as Isaiah goes forth, we say, okay, well then this is just a prophet Isaiah. Maybe it's in his delivery. Maybe it's in his demeanor and, and the way he conducts himself. But Christ himself takes these words upon his own lips in terms of his mission to Israel. In Matthew 13, 14 through 15, he cites this very text, this very commission, indicting Israel. And so when we hear this, we, we hopefully we can see that as the gospel goes forth, it's not always going forth um, with a receptive power, but it does accomplish something. Either someone is hardened to, their mess to the message or someone is softened to the message. Well then, as we look at this, is there any hope in Isaiah's mission? Because honestly, if, if we hear this, uh, we could go home and be rather discouraged. It, it sounds as if that this is it, this is the end of the story, gospel goes out, we just become more hard-hearted, we just rebel against God more, and, and there's no tenderness to the gospel. But when we think about the gospel, the Catechism is teaching us not only the gospel, but even Christian discipline. Both can open the kingdom of God. Then in terms of the gospel, obviously we think about the public declaration and general call of the gospel. This gospel, as it goes forth, is calling us to bow the knee to Christ. We hear of even Isaiah receiving uh, this taking away of his sin, covering of his sin, the expiation, atonement, Expiate, take away, atone, cover his sin. And so this, this message of hearing the accomplishment of Christ isn't something that just leaves us in a place of despair. Even Christian discipline. I, I like how the catechism reminds us. It's a call that, that we continually pray for these individuals that they amend their lives. 
In other words, that, that just being excommunicated or, or being put out of the church isn't just saying that the person is done. This is it. No hope. Uh, the door's closed. There's never going to be repentance. There's never any hope. I mean, it's not at all what the catechism is saying. In fact, our Forms and Prayers book have two, or there's two forms in our Forms and Prayers book for readmission, which means that even as we have a form for excommunication, there's at least hope and prayer that those individuals may one day be readmitted into the church. And so this is what the Catechism wants us to, to remember as well, that when there's a public statement about an individual who has gone uh, off the track or somebody who has uh, left the, the gospel and says, I don't want the gospel, that as the saints continue to pray, it's not that, that we see these prayers as useless. But then we can come back. We can look at Isaiah, we can say, but we read his commission. That here we have uh, the Lord's going to remove his people. The Lord's going to make Israel or Canaan a ghost town. That's the end of the story. They're going to be blind, they're going to be deaf, and they're going to be fat-hearted. In other words, very comfortable in this age, not wanting the things of God at all. But if we look closer at this passage, we can look at this on a human level and be discouraged. But at the end of, of verse 13, this is kind of Isaiah. There's like these, these little gems where you, you can read and, and get discouraged, and then you, you have to kind of go back and reread it, and then you find something in there that, that's not just hopeless despair. And that's where he talks about the Holy Seed is it stump. And so the, the picture here, when, when you just hear stump, this is not good, right? I mean, if we get firewood and we cut off a tree and it fell and it falls and, and we fell a, a forest or whatever or, uh, you know, a woods or whatever we may want to say, we, we take a group of trees, we cut them down. Normally, we, we see that as dead. We take the wood uh, we may burn it, we may sell it for lumber, who, who knows what we do with it? Most likely, firewood. And that stump means nothing to us, it, it's done. But there's a, a point here that there's a holy seed. In other words, it, it's not just left. There's this seed that is there. And so it's, it's playing on this reality that it's not just that this stump is incinerated and, and it's done, it's burned up, it's finished, we forget about it. But there's a seed here. And we may say, well, why, why is that so important? Well, if you look at Isaiah 7, again, we can look at the thrust of that narrative, be rather discouraged. You have Ahaz, he's worried about Syria and Ephraim uh, coming against him. He's tempted to rely on Assyria rather than the Lord. And Isaiah's reminding him, don't, don't rely on Assyria. That, that, that's not a wise course of action. Our God's a shield and defender. Our God can deliver you from this. Ahaz, repent, turn to your Lord, trust in him. And he tells Ahaz to make, a, basically, ask for a sign. Ask for validation for my word. That's basically what Isaiah is saying. Ask, ask God to validate whether or not what I say is true. Now, clearly this, this is testing the Lord. We, we, we want to be careful with this stuff. 
But Isaiah the prophet specifically turns to Ahaz and says, God told me you can ask for a sign. In other words, you don't even have to have faith. Ask for any sign you can think of, and God will validate my word. He can defend you. Ahaz says, well, I'm way too spiritual for this stuff. I'm not going to put God to the test. I'm not going to ask for a sign. In other words, he's not just going to say, well, I don't want to know if this is true or false because I've already made up my mind. That's really what's going on here. So Isaiah says, fine, I'll give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive, she shall have a child, and his name shall be Emmanuel. So there is this wonderful messianic prophecy right there in Isaiah 7, verse uh, you know, 14, with, with that promise that's given there. And Ahaz is one who doesn't want to embrace this. He doesn't see this as real. But that's the assurance that the seed, the line of David, has not fallen. Because right there, when Isaiah makes his promise, he's saying even though Ahaz in the line of David has apostatized and doesn't embrace Christ, has turned from Christ, has turned from the Lord, doesn't value the Lord, nevertheless, God has not forsaken his promise. And isn't that the essence and beauty of the gospel? That the seed of the Messiah is still coming. That's the word that Isaiah brings. So we go back now to Isaiah 6, verse 13. The holy seed is speaking of the holy line, the holy lineage, the holy descendant that was promised in the line of David. And as this holy descendant is promised, we we can look at Israel, we can look at the ghost town, we can look at Ahaz, we can look at the result and say, oh my goodness, what has become of God's people? There is no hope. Isaiah's commission is depressing. But Isaiah is saying, but there's verse 13. The Lord's purpose is not done despite what our eyes see. When we look beyond what is before our eyes and we look to the God of heaven, we see he's still at work despite his people, despite Ahaz. Because this theme of the seed and the stump is not just by implication from Isaiah 7. But there's also a reference to this in Isaiah 11. And it's, it's not in a direct one-to-one allusion, but, but it's the same sort of theme that Isaiah is picking up on. In Isaiah 11, he, he calls our attention to the, the tree, the line, the family tree of David. And it's depressing because the family tree is cut off. So it's the same imagery as here. Immediately you come up, you look at the stump, you say, oh my goodness, what has happened to the Lord's kingdom? What has happened to the Lord's promise? What has happened to the covenant he's made with David? It has fallen flat. God has failed to fulfill what he has said to do. And that's the imagery, that's the intention of Isaiah 11.1, that, that you come to, oh my goodness, the family tree of David is gone. It's finished, cut off. Then Isaiah calls our attention that there's a shoot coming out of the stump, which means that the line or the tree is not completely dead, that the holy seed, the holy lineage of God is still coming to fruition, and the Messiah is still entering history. And so when we go back now and we look at Isaiah 6 verse 13, this is where he's beginning uh, with this concept of a stump 
and the promise of the Messiah. But notice that there's something else. It's not the holy seedlings. It's not that there's, you know, you look around and you see these little seedlings popping up in this forest that has been felled and there's these little trees popping through the ground when you look closer. But there's one singular, the holy seed. We may say, well, why, why does that matter? Why is it so important there's one holy seed? <clears throat> because Isaiah commissioned to bring the gospel to a people that are hard-hearted, a people who are deaf, a people who are blind, a people who do not perceive the gospel promise. He sees here the seed, the one, the Messiah. And so when you go back to this vision of Isaiah being the spectator in the heavenly worship, I can't praise with the angels. I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't be in the midst and presence of the heavenly assembly because the people I dwell with are a people of unclean lips. We're a people who are supposed to subdue the land of Canaan and, and look at our king. Look at how he has turned against the Lord. Look at how we have turned against the Lord. The Lord has every right to make this, this place a ghost town as the Lord promises to do. And how Isaiah moves from being that spectator to the one who actually interacts with the Lord himself. Whom shall I send? Oh, send me, Isaiah says. And so you see that transformation. And the transformation happens in an altar with burning coals even before the ultimate sacrifice is made. That altar itself, just a promise, has cleansing power. Which tells us in a subtle way, in this picture, God's purpose is not done. He has not failed. His gospel promise has not fallen flat. So when we go back to verse 13, and the holy seed is referring to the Messiah, the one seed coming from the line of David, the one that was promised to Adam and Eve, and the seed of the woman that would triumph over the serpent is the seed that is in picture or in view here. And so we shouldn't see Isaiah's message then as one that's a dreary message of despair, a message of hopelessness. But we do see how the gospel opens and closes the kingdom. And we see how there is that declaration of the Messiah who is going to come to be the sacrifice and to be offered upon this heavenly altar. And so when we ask this question then, what does Isaiah learn about the preaching of the word? Isaiah learns, first of all, he's not worthy of himself to bring the word of God. This is the essence of his profession. I'm not worthy to bring it. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a man who needs the cleansing work of Christ. It's after the cleansing work of Christ that he brings a message. But this message is not always going to be received in a way we would like it to be received. It's a message that sometimes it's turning people away. This is what we find. But we also find that there's a beauty of the Lord's redemptive promise and work. That what seems to be hopeless in terms of what we perceive, what we see, even Ahaz himself, well, I'm not going to ask for a sign. The assurance is that God's purpose will be carried out. The Lord will accomplish what he has set out to do. His word will not return void. 
The thing that Isaiah ultimately learns then is that the Lord is a shield and defender. That against all hope, against all probability in terms of human consciousness and perception, the Lord's word will accomplish its effect. God's gospel will go out. His people will bow their knees. And so ultimately, as Isaiah goes on, even in his prophecy at the end, he gives the assurance of the ultimate consummate promises of God. Isaiah 66, you can find that certainly. And the assurance is that we will enter into the Lord's rest by his hand. So what we also find by implication of this is we don't despair. We don't know what God is doing. We continue to pray. We think of those who have gone away. We continue to pray for them. And we see that the Lord will accomplish his will. His gospel will carry out his effect. The Lord is a shield and defender to his people. We must remember we are not a people who are worthy to receive his blessings. We are a people who have been made worthy in Christ Jesus. We are a people who are naturally a people of unclean lips and a people who have been cleansed in Christ. Let us find our identity in that definition that Isaiah gives. And let us see that our God is our shield and defender who will carry out his will and his promises in his timing and on his terms. Let us wait upon our God. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.